Praise the Lord. God bless each and every one of you this evening. Amen. Is that too loud? <laughs> the good news is that uh, it's warming up. Praise God. The bad news is it's only January. Amen. We got a, we got a lot to look forward to yet. I was telling my wife over here that uh, winter's over. It's melting. Springtime's here. She resisted that prophecy, but uh, I'm going to keep proclaiming it. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I don't know. Let's all stand. In any case, whether we got a lot of winter or spring times around the corner, Jesus is here tonight. Amen. And I'm looking forward to what he has for us this evening. He is so good to us. The ministration of His Spirit is powerful. It's absolutely powerful, life-changing, what we can receive from the Lord every time that we gather together. Praise God. Let's call out to Him. Let's pray. Let's seek the face of God. And let's believe Him for great and wondrous things. Amen. Lord Jesus, we worship You. We laud and we magnify You. You are so good to us. You are so gracious and kind. You love us with a love that we cannot possibly understand. Your agape love. Hallelujah, Jesus. We laud and we magnify you. We worship and we praise you. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You are in this place this evening to minister and to bless and to heal and to save and to restore and to provide. To meet each and every need here tonight. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. You are not slack that you cannot save. Your arm is not short that it cannot deliver. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are powerful. You are mighty. You are wondrous in this and in every place. You are the creator of heaven and earth, the sea and the land and all that in them is. Hallelujah, Jesus. We worship you tonight, and we are so very thankful for all that we will receive of you tonight, the ministration of your spirit, the blessing of the Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. We desire to hear your voice. We desire to enter into your presence and spend time with you to receive of you your good things. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and your grace and your long-suffering patience to usward. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you are going to do here tonight. We give you the glory. We give you the honor. In these things we pray in Jesus' name. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing tonight. You can be seated. Amen. Praise God. Tonight, we are going to be talking about the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus. Our scripture text will be found in Revelation chapter 2. We'll read the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 2. Amen. Even though we're in the book of Revelation tonight, we're not going to get into, uh, as far as I know, any eschatology, any prophecy, anything like that. Uh, yeah, we'll save that for another time. Amen. But, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 starts off by saying this, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, 
and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. So here we see that a a letter is being written, not to the church of Ephesus per se, but to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? This Greek word, angelos, angelos, it's a word that can describe an angel or a human messenger, one who is sent on a special mission, one who is dispatched to perform a specific assignment, often used to denote a delegate or dignitary. Uh, it can picture the role of a pastor, an overseer, the messenger of God, a messenger of God. In this particular case, again, it's not being written to the church per se. It's meant for the church, but the instructions were very specific. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus, it's written to the pastor, the overseer of the church. God will never bypass spiritual authority. And at this part of the message, it gets weird for me, but I am compelled to continue. So, if God has a message for the church, or an alarm, (laughs) or any such thing, (laughs) this is a verily, verily. If God has a message for the church, especially a rebuke, the pastor is going to hear it first from the Lord. Amen. There is, There are many positions in the church, and I want to reiterate that, as far as I can tell, and certainly in my mind, the Bible does not speak of any difference, any separation between the so-called ministry and the so-called laity. I don't see that in Scripture anywhere. I see that all of us are sons and daughters of the Most High God. I see all of us are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we all stand in the presence of God, we all stand equally. There is no one superior and no one inferior in the presence of God. Amen. Amen, preacher. That's good stuff. It is good stuff. (laughs) However, we also understand that there are different positions. Positions have different varying levels of authority according to the will of God. Amen. Consummate with the responsibility they're given. Right? You don't have authority 
without responsibility. They go hand in hand. To the extent that you have responsibility, at least in a perfect world, you should be given that much authority to discharge the responsibilities that you've been given. If you've ever worked at a job or a workplace where those were unequal, you realize the frustration of that. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. In the kingdom of God, God gives equally. Responsibility, authority to meet the responsibility. Amen. The Bible talks about the fivefold ministry. We need the fivefold ministry, folks. We need it. Not just the pastor. We need all of it. And uh, it's, uh, well, just don't be surprised if God maybe taps you on the shoulder and wants to use you in some capacity. Can he do that? Yeah, he sure can. To the extent the pastor has authority within the body of Christ, he also has that measure of responsibility to God. That's why God's going to talk to him first, especially if it's a rebuke. If it's true that the buck stops here, and everything that happens within the body of Christ is ultimately the responsibility of the pastor. If that's true, then when God comes, God's going to come and see the pastor. He's going to talk to the pastor. If I could put it in different terms. As the head of the household, as the priest of the home, Man, I'm speaking to you. You have an awesome amount of responsibility, don't you? Now, when we get married, we're not thinking too much about that responsibility. We're thinking, man, I love that girl. I want to spend the rest of my life with her. I want to raise a family. I want to grow old with her. But what responsibility are we taking on? marrying that woman what responsibility are we taking on having children do you know that whatever happens in the home you are responsible for as men as the priest of the home now ladies help your guy out help him out because whether whether either one of us want the position to fall to us or not, it falls to us either way. The man can completely relegate it, can completely step away from it and give it all to you. If you want it, I have no idea why anybody would want it. Because people don't understand it. But he could do that. You guys could do that. But I promise you, God's not going to come to you, the wife. He's going to come to the man. Because God gave him the responsibility. Not the woman. Now the woman has a, a, an equal role in the marriage. A very important role in the marriage. But it's not that. 
That's reserved to the man. God has reserved it to the man. The responsibility is his. That's why he has authority within the home. Is because that awesome responsibility falls on his shoulders. And what an awesome responsibility it is. The responsibility of one or more souls, eternal souls, rests on that man's shoulder. And someday, we're going to have to give an account to God for that. So, I have no idea why I'm here right now. But, understand, understand, the responsibility is the man's. God is going to speak to the man in the home. But in the church, it's the overseer. He speaks to the overseer. Amen. Because that awesome responsibility is his. Amen. So please pray for me. Please pray for me. Amen. Okay, moving on. The word walketh connotes Jesus circling around the church. Viewing it from the outside. Looking in. Observing. Making notes, as it were. We know Jesus doesn't need to make notes. But then again, he doesn't need to walk around either and observe. He already knows he's omniscient. But the word picture is telling. It also connotes Entering into the church and getting right in the middle of it, right in the heart of it. He's observing it from all sides. He's understanding it. He's knowing it. The phrase, I know thy works, indicates to us that God is fully aware of the totality of who we are. He knows everything about us. It's a whole lot more than simply what we do. It's who we are. It's how we think. It's everything about us. Our likes, our dislikes, how we spend our time, our finances, everything. He knows our works. He's letting us know here that he's observed the church both on the outside looking in and on the inside looking around, and he's going to give us his report. Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 states this, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. So we see a lot of good things here going on at the church of Ephesus. God is giving praise. He's commenting on the good things that they're doing. When it says, I know thy labor. He's not simply referring to present tense. They have labored and are still laboring. They have been patient and are still exercising patience. And the labor Jesus is talking about here, the Greek word is, it means the most grueling and intense form of labor. Exhausting, tiring kind of labor. 
That kind of labor that makes even your hair hurt. Not mine, but yours. I always thought that expression was hilarious. My hair hurts. Anyway. When people come into the church, they're not simply accepted, but they're tried. They try the spirits. They, they try what's being said by them against, against what? Against the word of God. That's right. That'll be important later in the lesson. They don't simply accept people, but they try the spirits. They test the fruit. They make sure. Trust but verify. They try men's doctrines to see if they're in the book or no. They've borne and labored and have not fainted. They're continuing in the work of God. They haven't quit. They're not going to quit. They're keeping on, keeping on. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. They left their first love, folks. You've forgotten. You've lost what you had at the beginning of our relationship. Do you remember what it was like when you first came into the presence of God? Do you remember the very first time that you encountered Jesus Christ? I'll never forget. I'll never forget it at all. I remember everything. I remember the color of the carpet. I remember I remember everything. It was a little chilly in there, I thought. I don't remember the message. I don't remember one word that was said. (laughs) But I remember my reaction. I remember living for God the days and the weeks and the months after that experience. The newness, the freshness, the excitement. So excited to get back into church. Counting the days, literally counting the days until service was was going to be here again so i could experience god again like that so i could hear from him again like i heard from him that first time every time i'd open the the word of god it was it was an incredible experience things would just pop out at me all over the place i couldn't write fast enough it was so wonderful how that the lord spoke with me and and when I was learning to pray, I would imagine, I don't know if this was right or not, but <clears throat> I would imagine Jesus and me just kind of walking up to each other, and, and we'd hold each other, and we'd talk with each other. That's how I kind of imagined it, and it was so beautiful, and it was so exciting, and, and after my initial experience with prayer, once I, once I finally, I told you guys that before, but once I really started to, to understand what prayer was about, man, I was all in because I was going to meet Jesus. 
I worked close enough to the church uh, where I could, during my lunch, I could come into the church prayer room and pray. I'd spend my lunch in prayer. I'm not bragging. I'm just explaining what kind of a relationship I had with the Lord at first. My first love. It was so beautiful. And every one of you have a very similar experience, I have no doubt. When you first came to the Lord, how wonderful and and fresh and exciting and new it was and and how awesome God was and and how you couldn't wait to get into his presence, how you couldn't wait to get into a church service and lift up your hands and worship him. But how about today? How do we feel about things today? It's been a long time since that first experience for a lot of us. For me, it's been over 30 years. For some of you, it's been a whole lot longer. Some shorter. Things change in 30 years. When my wife and I first started dating, I couldn't wait to see her again. She couldn't wait to see me again. We'd call each other on the phone after we went our separate ways. Pathetic, right? I was a sad individual. I was sad because she was not a, I wasn't with her anymore. I had to call her on the phone. Is everything okay? How you doing? It's been a long time. 27 years later, we don't feel like that anymore. I think we have a better relationship now than we did. Well, you're not calling me up every hour. She wouldn't call me every hour. The relationship changes. It changes. We don't have that giddy kind of love anymore. I think it's a better kind of love, but uh, more sustainable. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, when I first came to the Lord, it was so beautiful. And at some point, things started to change. I wasn't always excited to come to church. I still came to church. But that, that emotion, that, that excitement, that, man, I can't wait to get back, it wasn't always there anymore. When I opened the Word of God, sometimes it was out of obligation, prayer. Sometimes it was a sense of duty. I still did it, but I discovered that every time I go into the presence of God, every time I go into a place of prayer, I don't always feel Him like that. Sometimes I don't feel anything. But we pray anyway, because we need to. God wants us to. It's the right thing to do. And God still hears our prayers, and he's still right there with us. But the church of Ephesus, they had continued to work for God. They had continued to do things for the Lord. They had continued to labor 
with patience. They bore their burdens. They discharged their duties, their obligations, their responsibilities. That's all it was. There was no love. There was no relationship. It was duty. They left their first love. I've mentioned this quote before. Uh, Brother T.F. Tenney had said this a long time ago. Maybe he still does. I don't know. But uh, he's still alive. I don't even know. Is he still alive? No, he's not. Well, and he's not going to anymore. He's talking to the Lord now. <clears throat> but he was talking about this situation. He said, they kept running the machinery long after the oil ran dry. And that had always stuck with me. I had a friend once that did that to a car engine. <clears throat> he thought it was hilarious. Running down the road at night, glow coming out from under the hood. And, uh, yeah, kept running till it stopped, till he, till he pulled it over and, and it fused. <laughs> Not much left. We need the oil, folks. We need the oil. The oil of the Holy Ghost. We need Jesus. We need a relationship with Him. Whatever we do for God, whatever, we, whatever He's tasked us with, the responsibilities that He's given us, we can't. We can't fulfill those, not really. Not the way He intends us to, except He be with us, and we with Him. That relationship has to be intact. Everything else could be, could be sacrificed, but our relationship with God cannot. That comes first. We can't just stay busy. It doesn't matter how busy we are. It doesn't matter the things that we do if God isn't with us, if, if, if He's not in the middle of it. Because then all it is is it's just us being busy. Look at all that we're doing. Look at all the activity. We're running around. We're doing stuff. We're, we're busy. But we're not being effective. We're not really doing anything except looking like we're doing something. Spending money. We're getting stuff done. Who cares? When the end result is zero. I can sit at home and, and watch a YouTube video and have the same result. Zero. The church of Ephesus, they started focusing on the doing. They've forgotten that they have to first become. Jesus died on a cross to save us from our sins. To transform us. That He could make us new creatures in Him. Not for the stuff that we could do for Him. He wants us to do stuff. But the primary, the primary thing in God's mind is I want a relationship with you. I want you to become like I am. I want you to become perfect. I want you to become holy.
if we look at the beginnings of the church at Ephesus, we see how they've ended up, but it certainly didn't start that way. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, starting with verse 1, we see the very beginnings of the church of Ephesus. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And he, they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. He said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? They said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, like they always do in Scripture. And all the men were about twelve. Jumping down to verse 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons. And the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Signs, wonders, and miracles in this foundling church. Verse 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, (laughs) We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. Very powerful statement. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, the chief of the priests, uh, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. There it is, folks. That's the beginning of the church of Ephesus. Powerful. Signs, wonders, miracles, conversions. It was a powerful experience for these, these men and women. But somewhere along the way, serving God became a duty, a chore, an obligation. They kept their machinery running long after the oil ran dry. As I was preparing this, the Lord brought this song to my mind. You'll know it. Some of you probably already know it. Uh, called, I Miss My Time With You. These are the words to that song. There he was just waiting in our old familiar place. An empty spot beside him where once I used to wait. To be filled with strength and wisdom for the battles of the day, I would have passed him by again if I didn't hear him say, I miss my time with you, those moments together. I need to be with you each day, and it hurts me when you say you're too busy, busy trying to serve me. But how can you serve me when your spirit's empty? There's a longing in my heart, wanting more than just a part of you. It's true. I miss my time with you. What will I have to offer? How can I truly care? My efforts have no meaning when your presence isn't there. But you'll provide the power if I take time to pray. I'll stay right here beside you. 
And you'll never have to say, I miss my time with you. Amen. What the Lord went through, what he endured, the shame, the pain, the suffering. I was thinking one time not too long ago. <laughs> I was lamenting the fact that uh, I didn't feel as respected as I probably should be. <clears throat> you ever been there? Men maybe especially? Yeah. And uh, it didn't take too long for the Lord to start speaking. And uh, he's like, yeah, I know what you mean. <clears throat> and I started thinking about it. How respected was Jesus? How respected were the apostles? Paul said, I made the off-scouring of the world. Not very respected. The things that he endured for me, just so that I could spend time with him, that was his purpose, folks. There was a great big gulf. There was a barrier of sin betwixt him and me. I couldn't surmount it. But God could. He could. He paid for my sins. His justice was satisfied. He forgave me. He changed me. And now I have free access. And you have free access to the throne of grace. Whenever we want. Do we avail ourselves of that? Other times in our lives where we'll make excuses. Why we can't spend time in prayer right now. Why I can't read some of God's word right now. Excuses as to why I can't come to church and worship God. The, the things that God went through for me. He deserves my time. If I feel like it or not. He deserves my full attention whether I feel like it or not. And no, I don't always feel like it. But he deserves it anyway. It is absolutely irrelevant how I feel in the moment. My duty, my obligation, my responsibility is clear. I owe him everything. Everything. And every time I make an excuse, every time I, I reason and rationalize my lack of attention to Him, folks, that's just plain wrong. That's wrong. He loves me. We love Him. We love Him. We'll spend time with Him. We'll 
do the things that pleases him. Regardless of whether I feel like it or not. Revelation 2 and 5 says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Remember. Jesus is saying, remember. Remember what we once had. Remember how you once felt in my presence. The excitement. How excited you were for the the next prayer meeting, the next church service, the next Bible study. Remember that. When he says, from whence thou art fallen. It's not... It's not meaning that they're in the process of falling. The word here is that the process has been completed. They have fallen. They have fallen out of love. Do the first works. Remember how you acted in the beginning of our relationship. Remember the things you did then. Do them again. Sometimes, yes, it will be because of duty or obligation. But in my experience, folks, that's the exception. The rule is, I'm excited to spend time with God. I enjoy coming into the presence of God. I enjoy worshiping God with all of you. I really do. I look forward to our services. I look forward to our time together in the presence of God. Amen. But that's not always. Do those things again. Pray always. Worship long. Thank much. Choose me. Jesus wants us to choose him. If you've left your first love, you need to repent. You need to return to him. Amen. Revelation 2 and 6 says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. When you were raising your children, did you teach them not to use the word hate? can't remember now if we did or not. But interestingly enough, Jesus hates. There are things that God hates. God hates sin. He hates rebellion. Better believe it. And those things that God hates, we hate. Or we should hate. Now notice here, it doesn't say that he hated the Nicolaitans. He hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. In verse 15, it says he hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The word hate here means to hate, to abhor, or to find utterly repulsive. 
a deep-seated animosity, intense hatred, repugnance, objectionable, something that causes one to feel disgust, repulsion, a deep-seated aversion. This isn't simply a dislike. I dislike McDonald's. I hate McDonald's. It's not that. That's something far greater than that. I'll still eat McDonald's. I just would choose most anything else. This is a case of actual hatred. God is repulsed by the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He's repulsed by it. It's repugnant to him. It's disgusting to him. So who are these Nicolaitans? The word Nicolaitans comes from the Greek word Nicolaos, which means to conquer and subdue people. A proper Greek name that means one who conquers and subdues people. They were located in Ephesus and in Pergamum. Pergamon. We see the mention in both the letter to uh, the angel of Ephesus and the letter to the angel of Pergamon. We hear about the Nicolaitans. In Pergamon, there was a temple of Isis and Serapis. That's located in modern-day western Turkey. They were Egyptian gods that the heathen, the pagans, would come and worship. Believers had been delivered from the worship of false gods. Thank God for that. And so they would, they would not frequent the temples anymore. They would avoid them. The Nicolaitans, however, were a group of teachers who had it in their heart to effectively conquer and subdue God's people. How? They believed this doctrine, this idea of separation was too strict. Too separated, a stance to take. It was a heretical group that taught there, were not, there was nothing wrong with serving Christ while simultaneously participating in pagan practices. How can we do that? How can we serve Jesus and serve idols at the same time? The Nicolaitans taught that we should go to the temples with the pagans. We should participate in those practices with the pagans in the effort to win them to Jesus. Today you might say, I go to the bars drinking with my buddies. We, we go through a Bible study. We teach Bible studies at the bar. Getting drunk. Really? We should fellowship with unbelievers in the places they would congregate and hopefully win them to Christ. In essence, their position was one of compromise with unbelievers. Compromise with the world. That's what they taught. You could live like the pagans live, do what the pagans do, and still be a Christian. Especially if you can derive some peace from doing it. There's a lot of persecution when we separate ourselves from the world. We know that. We stand out. We're different. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we could just make all that go away? Well, just look like the world, act like the world, and serve Jesus. Now there's no more fight. No more stress, no more worry. 
Now, this is exactly what Daniel did not do. We heard about that on Sunday. He could have very easily conformed to the Babylonian culture. But he did not. He chose to remain separate. He chose to continue to pray to God, to serve God. Even when it became very uncomfortable, very... uh, The word is gone. That word. To do so. Two times in Revelation, in 2.6 and in 2.15, we read that Jesus hates the deeds, hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This doctrine was having a profound effect on the younger converts of the first century church. Understand. And you're going to see a lot of parallels between the Nicolaitans and the culture today. Jesus was calling them to a life of separation, wasn't he? Just like he's calling us today to a life of separation. Now, we're not supposed to lock ourselves away in an ivory tower. We have contact with the world. We have friends in the world. We're trying to win them to Christ. But we don't conform ourselves to the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. Amen. We are still separate. We look different. We act different. We think different. Amen. So Jesus was calling them to a life of separation when they they turned their lives over to him. Their families had not yet come to Christ and didn't understand all of this. Why can't you go to the temple and worship Isis with us? Has some of you... uh, You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you were the first people saved in your family? If you were if you were that person, you understand a little bit what was going on here. Your family doesn't get it. I was the first one saved in my family, and they didn't get it. They're like, I I don't why why can't you drink? Why can't you do this? Why do you have to do that, church, that many times a week? The Nicolaitans were saying, you don't have to worry about any of that. Just keep on living like you were. And be a Christian. Easy. Well, as you may have guessed, that spirit... Nicolaitanism is alive and well in the world today. Very much alive. There are church leaders today who, like the Nicolaitans of the past, seek a truce with the world under the guise of inclusiveness and ecumenicalism. You've heard of ecumenicalism. Let's just forget about all of our differences and focus on the things that we have in common. Let's just, let's just all get together and love Jesus and, and worship Jesus. It looks good on paper. Nah. It doesn't look good on paper either. Um, anyway, we'll get more into that. Um, 
Some of these leaders, some of these church leaders, once held strong doctrinal and biblical beliefs, but over time have allowed themselves to be influenced by the ever-changing moral climate of our world. Again, it's the idea that as long as I'm above the world, I'm good. But the world keeps going like this. And so I'm going like this, but I'm still above the world. So I'm still good. I was up here, but now I'm down here. If only I had some kind of, oh, say, objective standard with which to rule my life by. Wouldn't that be nice? I do. I have the Word of God. I don't have to worry about conforming to the world or just staying above the world. I can actually compare myself and judge myself by something objective. Something that doesn't change. Something that's founded on a stone. Something that is written with an iron pen. Amen. The Word of God. The Word of God is that standard. Not them. Not this world. That is my standard. And when I compare myself with that, I don't have to worry about the fluctuations of the world. The climate... Climate changes. (laughs) <laughs> the changes in our cultural climate. <laughs> Don't have to worry about climate change either. Amen. But uh, so, what are we looking for? There's four things. There's a lot of things you could look for, but four things really stand out to me. If someone has no emphasis on holy living and separation from the world, that's something to avoid. 1 Peter 1, 15, 16 says, But as he which hath called, to his, called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And 2 Corinthians six seventeen says, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Amen. He is calling us to a life of separation. We're not to separate ourselves from, from people, per se, but we're to separate ourselves from, from the evil of this world, every appearance of evil, and separate ourselves unto God. Amen. Because, folks, I'm getting ahead of myself, but when we separate ourselves unto God, that's powerful. There's power in that. And when we compromise with the world, that sucks the power right out of us. That bleeds the spiritual power right out, of a, right out of a Christian. When we compromise with the world, we cannot compromise doctrine. We cannot compromise the truths of Scripture. Amen. Another thing to look for is no emphasis on the doctrinal teaching of Scripture. The Nicolaitans believe, rather than being our foundation of absolute truth, they believe the Bible is too restrictive. It's not inclusive of other people's beliefs. They use the Bible merely as a reference for illustrations, motivational sermons, inspirational ideas, or principles allowing us to live our best life now. Amen. They would see any and every other opinion and worldview as being equal to Scripture, even when these other ideas contradict the Bible. This disturbing trend is so prevalent in our churches. I have the, the guy that 
uh, won me to the Lord. I heard him talking about revelation to, to someone. I went to church with him, and everything happened. Amen. But I keep in contact with him. Dave Solace is his name, and wonderful friend. Uh, he's the exact opposite of me. He's a raging extrovert, and, and he can tell a story like nobody. I could just sit and listen to him for hours. Amen. He's just, he's just a fun guy. But uh, uh, he was telling me that in his church, he, the church I got saved in, uh, they run hundreds, several hundred people. They have three services on Sunday, different services. Anyway, uh, so a lot of people run through there. But he was telling me, he ushers for all of them. He was telling me that uh, he knows a lot of the people there. And when he's speaking to people, they don't know almost everything about the Bible. They are ignorant of very basic things. People that have been going to church for years don't know what's in the Bible. They don't know. They ask him questions, very fundamental questions, like, who was on the ark? Yeah, they'd believe you. They'd, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I think that's right. Moses. <clears throat> I mean, and there are more foundational, more, if I can say, more important issues that they're completely ignorant of. They know about Acts 2.38, and that's about it. Yeah, that's about it. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Again, I'm not, I'm not boasting by any means, but, but when the Lord saved me, when he filled me with the Holy Ghost and changed and transformed me, I had a love for the Word of God. I had a desire to seek that thing out and know what's in it. God gave that to me. I, I thought he gave everybody that. It's his Word. He wants us to know his Word. But church is enough for some people, I guess. It's not enough for anybody, folks. It's not enough for anybody. What comes over this pulpit is great stuff, but it's not enough. You need to get into the Word of God every day. Every single day. You need the Word of God. It is our daily sustenance. Our daily spiritual sustenance. You may think you can go a few days without it, but I promise you, and again, speaking from experience, I've tried it. I felt really good after a service. Didn't need it for a while. Then everything starts going wrong. I start getting bad attitudes. I just Everything just starts going wonky. In me. And when I get back on track, things just get sorted out. I start praying again, start reading the Word of God again, get nourishment again. I get strength again. Amen. This trend is so prevalent that more and more churchgoers are completely ignorant of basic biblical doctrines such as the virgin birth of Jesus. Is that an important doctrine? You better believe it is. That's an extremely important doctrine. The sinlessness of Jesus. I hope I don't have to say how important that is. Some people think that he had sin. 
but he's saving us anyway. I don't know how. That Thank God. Doctrine of sin, salvation, holiness, eternal judgment. They're either being inadequately taught, they're considered optional, or they're not even considered as being necessary. Why? Because of the Nicolaitan spirit of compromise. In our world today, now I'm not, I'm not even talking about the world, folks. I'm talking about compromising with the world. I'm talking about church people, Christians. Another thing to look for is no emphasis on absolute truth or absolute biblical authority. It's just another book. It has good sayings. It's nice to read, but not necessary. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says something different. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Peter 1, 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is given is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The last statistic I could find was four years ago. But four years ago, over 50% of evangelical Christians did not believe in absolute truth. Over 50%. I imagine that number has increased in four years. Do not believe in absolute truth. If we don't have absolute truth, then what do we have? Relative truth. Your truth is different from my truth, and they're both equally relevant. How safe. How sterile. The Bible might be right, but it might be wrong too. Also, there are other equally valid beliefs that may not agree with Scripture, but they're all good. Which brings us to our final point, no exclusionary belief that Christ alone is the way to heaven. All roads lead to heaven. It's not true. Maybe I should keep saying that. These, these points I'm making are not mine. That's the Nicolaitan spirit. I do not believe those. John 14, 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. John 11.25 says, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. These directly contradict and violate this Nicolaitan idea that all roads lead to heaven. All roads do not lead to heaven. All truths are not equally valid. There is one truth that's valid, and that's the truth found in Scripture. Period. These would have us believe that to claim that Jesus is the only way to be saved is just intolerant, unintelligent, and utter nonsense. I say it's the very Word of God. It's the truth of God. Amen. Jesus is the only way to salvation, period. He's our, only, he's our only hope. If you don't have Jesus, you have no hope at all. 
Amen. If Nicolaitanism is embraced, it produces a powerless, weakened version of Christianity where sin is tolerated, separation is ignored, and the need for repentance and a new birth experience is disregarded. You're fine just the way you are. Just keep living the way you're living and call yourself a Christian. We're all good. Everybody's good. That's the Nicolaitan spirit that Jesus hates. The doctrine that Jesus hates. Amen. In conclusion, Revelation 2.7 says, He that hath an ear, hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The word overcometh means a victor, a champion, one who possesses superiority. It can be translated to conquer, to defeat, to master, to overcome, to overwhelm to surpass or to be victorious. Amen. And that's who we're called to be, and that's how we're called to live, from victory to victory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Amen. We are to be conquerors, more than conquerors, through him that loved us. Praise God. Through him that loved us. Not of ourselves. we got to abide in him and him in us. Without him we can do nothing. But with him, with him, we are supposed to be a powerful, overwhelming force in this world. Praise God. What did Jesus do when he lived on the earth? Go thou and do likewise. Let's all stand. Jesus, we worship you. We're so very thankful for you. I pray right now, Lord Jesus, if any one of us have left our first love. If any one of us has left off from those things that we used to do, those, 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 those experiences, those feelings that we once had, the importance of a relationship with you, that you were the center of everything, that you were the, the central focus of our lives. If that has left, if, if, if we have fallen from that, if we have left our first love, Lord, lead us to a place of repentance, I pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, to get our first love back. Help us, Lord Jesus, to... to uh, we need that restored. We need that restored, that you become the center of our lives once more. Hallelujah, Jesus. If we've let any compromise into our spirits, in our minds, our hearts, our lives, help us to repent, to find a place of repentance. Help us, Lord Jesus, to get compromise out of our lives, to get back to the absolute authority of Scripture. To understand once again that you, you are the way to salvation and you only. That the word of God is true and true alone. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. This is the truth. This is the truth. And this only. Hallelujah, Jesus. We worship you. We're so thankful for you. I pray a blessing upon each person here this evening. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we, as we continue to walk in separation, as we continue to be ye holy, as you are holy, Lord Jesus, that your power and that your authority would wax strong through this church, that they would wax strong through each individual here. Hallelujah, Jesus. The power of separation, the power of oneness, the power of a submitted and obedient life to the Lord our God. Oh, hallelujah. Work in us and through us, I pray, your perfect will. Let Jesus be demonstrated to this world through your church. Let your love be demonstrated. Let your power and authority be demonstrated. Let your mercy be demonstrated to this world through your church. Hallelujah, Jesus. 
and that your name would be glorified in our midst. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Praise God.